0: Now recording, and this is Out Now with Aaron and Abe. I am Aaron, and Abe is... Well, he's not here. Out Now is a film podcast where Abe and I normally discuss new movies weekly. However, every now and then we like to have these special bonus episodes, whether it's one of our fun commentaries or something completely different. But this is our on commentary for the month this is august of 2017 we do a commentary every month and this is the august commentary track and this month in honor of its 50th anniversary we figured let's do something a little cooler let's do some let's go let's do something retro uh, and so we're going to talk bonnie and clyde um the, the famed new wave films uh, starring uh, warren beatty and faye dunaway i think there's gonna be a lot to talk about here so let's get into who i have speaking with me today i think a uh, Got a cool set of guests here. First up, as you expect from Why So Blue and the Cult Cinema Cavalcade podcast, some call him gun crazy, it's Brandon Peters.
1: It's nice to see the meshing of two uh, notorious cinematic criminal uh, couples coming together out now with Aaron and Abe and uh,
0: Bonnie and Clyde. It's a beautiful thing. (laughs) Exactly. Also with us, author of the book series Who Won? He's the strangest damn writer you ever heard of because he's young and in love. It's Robert James. (laughs) Good evening. Ah, uh, Robert. Glad to have you here. Good to have you on for your first commentary track with us.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
0: For sure, I I, I thought that actually, and Brandon actually brought this up as a as a suggestion to have you know bring to bring on what would I would what I, who I would call someone a, a film historian of sorts uh, to bring you on for for an episode like this where we're talking about a a movie that's much older than the ones we tend to do for commentary tracks. I thought this would be a a good idea. Okay. And to just to refresh the audience, um, because you've been on the podcast a few times on our regular episodes, what what is the what is the Who Won book series? What does that entail?
2: Basically, I've gone back through every single year of the Academy Awards and redone them as they should have been. What should have won, what should not have won, what should have been not been nominated. And the books go through it year by year, almost every single category. A couple I leave out and do on the blog instead, because it's very difficult to figure out best editing because you don't really see what they took out and what they left in in um, some of the more obscure categories because those films are really hard to track down. So I do everything and uh, try to do it with some fun and some humor and some analysis, and uh, it's been a real joy writing over the last five years, and I've got, I'm up to 1973 in my current writing. Oh,
0: well, there you go. Yeah, yeah, that's... it's It's quite the... <laughs> Quite the number of years to cover, as far as watching just like you know thousands of films, essentially for all of this. But uh, it's certainly worth it. I've read, I've read the first volume. I've read various chapters of some of the other ones. It's it's good stuff. Um, Well, thank you. Yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, um, for those of you listening that are coming into this commentary and thinking, how does this work exactly? I'm going to tell you right now. Uh, Brandon, Robert, and I all have the film Bonnie and Clyde synced up at four seconds in. So on our various devices, I have a, we have Blu-rays or streaming. We're all paused at four seconds into the movie, and I'm going to count down from three. And when we when I say go, we're going to press play and just start talking over it. If you happen to wa- be watching Bonnie and Clyde and listening to this commentary, good on you. I know it was, scre- it, was uh, it was screening in uh, select theaters this week because of its 50th anniversary, and I very much encourage that anyone that goes to these screenings and this, if this commentary is up in time, you should take your iPod with you and listen to the commentary while watching the movie in theaters. But if you're just doing it at home or what have you, uh, good on you anyway. Always good to have that. If you're just listening to this um, without watching the movie, you just sit back and enjoy You don't have to do anything. You just like to sit there and listen to us talk about this thing, and you'll pick it up as we go along. Um, but, yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk over the movie. Obviously, we have the movie on mute so you can hear us and not the movie because that would be illegal. Um, <laughs> we're going to go through this. So, um, yeah, uh, I think that's all I need to cover here. Um, this is the 1967 Bonnie and Clyde, <laughs> since Brendan made sure to point that out to me beforehand, that there was that miniseries, but that's not. we're not talking about that. We're talking about the classic Bonnie and Clyde. Um, I don't think anyone has that confused, so here we go. Okay, I'll, let's get started. Let's get let's stop, stop rambling. All right. Three, two, one, go. Okay. So I got the Warner Brothers, the old Warner
2: Brothers Shield logo. Warner Brothers! Uh. <clears throat> I think one of the most interesting things about the movie is it's very fast editing. This was unprecedented in American film. And this is D.D. Allen, the editor, who naturally by the Academy, they ignored her completely. But she is radically remaking how American film is cut together much more in the frame of the French new way. But this opening credits is very fast. Boom, 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 boom. That was really unprecedented. Such fast cuts.
0: It's interesting to look at like films like this or even like The Godfather and see what they were. They were nominated for a lot of things, but certain things they weren't. Like, I uh, could you, like you just mentioned with editing right there, um, and then you look at the number of nominations. Like the first Godfather got, and it's like, well, why did they leap out this and that? It's it's seeing these kind of changes go along. Um, yeah, with this movie specifically, yeah, you're. I mean, it's a it's a great point. There is a lot of interesting techniques they use, which we'll get into as they uh, as we go through the movie. But for now, we're just seeing lots of pictures, lots of pictures of these people. <laughs> I, I mean, le- legacy. legacy is- legacy is more
1: important than being handed the award in a given year it seems like it at the time but you know you change change film history i mean you change the way things are done that's a and people still talk about your film that's more important than uh robert you could probably name the other nominees from this year but oh, this, is a great, this is a great offhand, year. <laughs> yeah. it is a great year it is a great year and but,
0: and like, dr Doolittle, but it's also a great year <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, oh yeah it's work? that it's that year i forgot <laughs> yeah <laughs> I think what's really interesting is that this whole film is a mixture of traditional Hollywood techniques and new ones because the whole, right now we're watching it, the little photograph of Bonnie Parker and little biography of her, that's new. We haven't really seen that before, but it's also a playback in the 1930s when they used to have actual little film clips or shots of the actors, so they, and they would tell you who they were playing mm-hmm. rather than just giving you a flat credit. So the whole film is a mixture of really both and then opening up in this very close-up of Faye Dunaway's lips.
1: A lot of movie serials would do that back at, back in the day. They'd have the character, right. what they were up to in the previous installment, and they'd go through them and then start it off. Yeah. I I think it it's it's crazy. This movie was, I mean, you could compare it to... It was if, not only were the characters it based off of a complete uh, national phenomenon at the time, but the movie became a national phenomenon, too. I mean, it was... Yeah. I, essentially, to compare it like the Titanic of its day. I mean, it, we're well, it far bombed, past... It,
2: huh? it bombed initially, but Warren Beatty basically uh, blackmailed it to be re-released again. But I think it's interesting here that you're seeing almost nudity over and over and over again, which is very much traditional. And They're, they're just cutting the camera just where it won't show anything. And then mm-hmm. she's beating on the bars of her bread like, like beating on the, the the prison bars. There's a, And then she sees Warren Beatty outside. And like, things start
0: to get more. I like the introduction structural. of I like the introduction of Beatty here, where it's different from what how this actually how they actually met the actual Bonnie and Clyde. But like yeah. it, just watching this is like this random guy just trying to, maybe to rob this car and it gets caught. Like that's it. I that's mean, it. <laughs> to
1: to if, to come up with what exactly to adapt and to consolidate for the screenplay had had to be an incredible challenge because they have like. So many interesting little stories and people that they came across in their, you know, their. Oh, what would my words are escaping me now, but um, in their their couple years run of you know robbing and running away, there's like different little nicks and cr- news and crannies and what they've picked and who they've picked to show. I mean, that's a there's different angles you could tell this story from.
0: There are about like just seeing how the film actually does it it's just like the most inconsequential yeah. way possible to bring these two this you know epic love story together essentially
1: uh, yeah it's i mean for as big as this movie gets as like crazy and frantic it starts out just
2: lollygagging yeah. you know
0: yeah it's a it's a i would just it's a agree great... with
2: that completely it's titillating the audience it's showing her almost naked time and time again it's pushing what was the production code at the time
1: true, true. yeah
2: buttons and then when she runs down the stairs if it was a little better lit You'd be seeing a whole lot of things you have never seen in an American film before. It's really pushing the edge of the boundaries in terms of what was acceptable and what wasn't. There's no lollygagging going on. Right, right, in in right. terms
0: I mean, of, in terms of, yeah, in ter- it, it, it's subtextually and in terms of what, at the time, what it's doing, sure. But if you, like lay, if you, like, write down the circumstances for what's happening, it's like girls just kind of laying about in a room, sees random dude outside, and goes down to meet him. Like, I mean, that's... That's more what I'm referring to. I get the in terms of like the yeah. style of the film. I completely agree with you, Robert. I know what you're saying. No,
1: you're you're absolutely right, Robert. You have to look at it in the lens of when it came out, and like none of this was being done. But yeah, I was just, in terms of like looking at it now, or um, just like the what's going on the, at the core level, rather than how it's being told.
2: I'm just watching the two of them looking at her because what what always amazes me about Faye Dunaway is that she's always so incredibly bored throughout much of this movie. The, the what the problem she has is that she's sexually frustrated, as is Warren Beatty, who has some serious sexual issues. But she's she's as much bored by what's happening as anything else. She's just looking for something to stop the boredom more than anything else.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, bunny in real life, you know she. Kind of that way, where she was a waitress and we're living with her mom after her husband, who she was married, she never got a divorce from uh, officially. He was in jail at this time because he was, you know, similar to Clyde. Mm-hmm. And she I met, also
2: think it's interesting if you watch carefully how much of the whole potency issue coming from Warren Beatty is the fact that he's got a limp means one of his legs isn't working. And then we find out later another one of his legs isn't working. Uh, and then the, the soda pop being held up like that. And then it's a fellatio scene. Both of them are, are more or less having hard phallic objects in their mouths. And it's all the tilted up things you constantly see with Warren Beatty. The, the, the soda pop and his, his leg and the gun later. And uh, the, um, the matchstick in his mouth is, is, is tilted up like it is right there. It, there's all this subtext going on. It's just not common for an American film. Prior to this, to really have a lot of that,
0: which is, I mean, inter- which is interesting because uh, what, was it Arthur Penn that like nixed the kind of the the bisexual angle on the Clyde character? No, no,
2: that was Warren Beatty.
0: It was Warren Beatty. He
2: refused mm-hmm. to do it, and so they shifted it from from bisexuality to uh, impotence. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Well,
2: because you can see her playing. Look at him. Look at her. The, the the match going up, and then her staring at his gun, his hard phallic gun. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, and she's touching it now as if it's his penis. Well, cause yeah,
1: they have, the, there's the inference that they were, um, both sleeping with, uh, oh, what's his name?
2: WD. Michael J. Pollard.
1: Yeah. That, there's the inferences movie that, that, but like Clyde was, uh, when he was in prison, like leading up to his release where he meets Bonnie, he was in real life. He was like repeatedly raped by a guy who he ended up killing, but it was, uh, another inmate took the, the blame for the killing. But, uh, and his whole his whole mission behind, you know, these robberies and doing this was to eventually have the money in Arsenal to make a joke of the prison he was in and release as many inmates as he could. That was their whole goal of all this, but they got caught up in just everything. And they were they were compared to some of the other big names, they were petty crooks.
2: Well, there wasn't any money in the banks in the depression.
1: Yeah. I mean they they were like their, their scores were basically, you know, ammo, guns, and like, you know, a couple bucks. That the, was, and they, the, they would the first, live off that.
0: The first cue of the music just came in with the just the the rapid banjo playing, which is it it it's just really fun. <laughs> it's really enjoyable. And this like, well, look how
2: turned on Faye Dunaway is by the violence.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, suddenly she's oh, yeah. completely.
2: I remember it. Watch how they speed up the film when he pushes her away. Which is another 30s technique for fight scenes and such. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right there. They sped the film up. Yeah. And there he is limping again.
0: I mean, Clay may not be rich, but he does dress pretty flashy.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also think it's Warren Beatty playing this type when he says, I ain't no lover boy. Warren Beatty was the lover boy of Hollywood. His uh, sister, Shirley McLean, once said, Just imagine what Warren could have accomplished if he'd been celibate.
0: <laughs>
2: and Dustin Hoffman said, If Warren had been a virgin, he would have been the greatest director in world history. <laughs>
0: there was a point where Shirley McLean was attached to play Bonnie before Warren Beatty came on, I believe, too.
2: That would have been creepy.
0: Well, that's why they, you know did <laughs> that's why she dropped off the project once he became involved
2: well there's still a tone of incestuousness watch the interplay between gene hackman playing warren Beatty's brother there's a lot of homoerotic stuff going on in those scenes
0: and it's what i was mentioning earlier where uh regardless of who who nicks the concept out of the script but i mean they despite the fact that it's not played as it's not you know it's not willingly played as a Clyde being bisexual there's still a the 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 editing directorial and you know script choices still have elements there that just as you've already been mentioning um kind of play off of that so it's it's creating this depiction of this guy who can be seen is incredibly cool, um, for one reason, okay. but also certainly, you know, revolutionary of sorts, and other, for other reasons.
2: And also, you know, the, the Michael J. Pollard character was originally in the script, because it was the only way that uh, Clyde could have sex if another man was in the room with them. And then Beatty just totally stopped that. In fact, Francois Truffaut was the director that uh, the, the screenwriters wanted, mm-hmm. and when he heard that Warren Beatty was attached to the project, he refused to do it. He refused to work with Warren Beatty. He didn't trust the man. He had some fairly insulting things to say about him. When did but Beatty he start producing?
0: When did Beatty start producing? Right what? around,
2: I think this is the huh. film. Yeah. I, I, there might have been one before. I know he worked on a film with what Arthur Penn before that his name escapes me at the moment. Yeah. But um... It's nowhere near as well known and it failed at the box office, but. No, I think this is where he really started pushing it and where he was producing and, and then ultimately eventually directing down the line.
0: Yeah, because Beatty was already a star at this point when he was playing
2: as Clyde. Uh, not a top star, but... Uh, but he, was, he
0: had, he had a number of hits under his belt. I mean, yeah, the they, got, in the grass. they got bigger, yeah.
2: <laughs> I, yeah,
1: this this is definitely one of his first... Because I, I, I think there's a feature on here where Faye Deneway's talking about Sounding like an idiot, meeting Warren Beatty because she's like, you're like the first actor and producer in your own film, and she's like, I completely forgot about Charlie Chaplin and before him,
0: <laughs> or Orson Welles, or
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: It's also interesting the fashion impact this film has, and the what you know you don't see the beret yet, but basically, Faye Dunaway is not wearing a bra. And from her, this movie on, young women didn't wear bras for about seven or eight years. When I was a young Bella and, and about that height, you could tell they weren't wearing a bra on a regular basis. But then they discovered gravity worked, and they stopped doing that. <laughs> Now, this is the whole radical chic thing—the fact that these two characters are so incredibly attractive.
1: Yeah. Well, it's funny they're they're a, a bit older than the real Bonnie and Clyde because when you think about the real Bonnie and Clyde, they were like early—they died in their early twenties, but they started this in their early twenties. That's just like insane to think of. And baby, I think is thirty in his thirties here, and she's in her late twenties.
2: Something
1: like that, do. yes. Yeah. So it's a. a, a bit of a big difference it's like when you realize how young they were it's even more shocking
2: well i tell you i'm I'm also you're absolutely right and but also the 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 art direction is fantastic oh yeah they went they went and filmed in texas in these old towns that never left the depression yeah so they they found towns that had not changed in 30 years at all and were still as poor as they had been in the depression and you can see that over and over and over again
0: I think of the first like fifteen minutes of this movie is still like the meet cute between them, right? which mm-hmm. is learning various details about them, even though they've already been involved in a heist together. They've they've gone through a routine of uh, possibly sleeping together. Uh, they're already kind of committed to one another. Uh, it's it, it it's a quick movie. I mean, this you know this movie only what like an hour and 50 hour fifty. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it just it moves. It just I
2: goes, mean, this yeah. this has
1: an incredible pace to it.
2: And again, that's, of those... DD, that's D.D. Allen, the editor, who mm-hmm. Warren Beatty and others said that she cut the film so fast in ways that no other American editor ever had before. And they're, they're picked, they're eventually the jump cuts that you get from, from uh, uh, Breathless by Jean-Luc Godard and the other French New Wave uh, directors and, and the quick cutting, this is all completely antithetical to American editing.
1: I mean, it cha- it does cha- it changes everything. I mean, there's a lot that comes from this movie that starts affecting the late '60s and pretty much leads into what the '70s was. Yeah, it's right.
0: Not, it's not surprising you are mentioning DDL. It's not surprising to see you know, she worked she worked with Arthur Penn a number number of times, but also Sydney Lumet, who is a director that you know always, always always relied on a lot of quick pacing in his films. Like you never watching what was it? Because she didn't do a, she's still alive by the way, Jackie. No, she actually yeah, she died. I did. don't know. She died in 2010. Apparently, um, but I, I she didn't edit um before the devil knows you're dead. Cindy Lumet's like last film, but if she had, if she had, I wouldn't be surprised because that movie moves like in, insane for the like the the right. the, the Very fascinating
2: scene here between the white farmer and the black farmer, and the commentary that's being made about the class war in America that few movies had ever really marked about, other than some of the most broadest possible ways. But getting to shoot up the property of the bank now that their farm is no longer their home, they no longer belong at the idea that they can commit violence against the capitalist institutions that are oppressing them. There, there is that that layer of commentary going on. That's all Arthur Penn. It wasn't in the original screenplay. The the looking for the posters of FDR in town and such too. Penn really is the one that moved into a movie about a class warfare and about a, the the racial issues here, in which the black the poor white farmer and the poor black farmer both get to commit this act of violence against those who had really taken away things from them that really mattered. And then Bonnie and Clyde later on doing the same thing in a more violent fashion against Banks.
1: How were their character depictions in the earlier screenplays? Were they any Um, darker, darker than they were here, or...?
2: More twisted,
1: more twisted, like more true, true to life, or
2: I don't know. I don't know enough about the original Body and Clyde that you've obviously done the research on it. I don't know enough about it, and I've only read pieces of the original screenplay and accounts of it. I haven't actually read the original.
1: Screenplay. Okay, well, you were referring to it a couple of times, so I was just curious, just, I because I haven't read the original screenplay or anything, but I just I just know in you know like in real life I had to yeah I had to do this film a couple couple different college courses and you know did the you know done background research on who they were in real life and stuff and they were you know it's odd the uh, america at this at at the time the movie takes place was obsessed with these criminals like and bonnie and clyde were uh, of the biggest and i think it's because of the romantic Angle, but people were obsessed with like ruthless killers.
0: That's probably how the press paints them too. And, and I
1: mean, how, how, they're, how they're reading these stories, well, especially. Well, in, you know, part,
0: it, it, it's a distraction for reality as well.
1: It took to finally some needless killings before the public turned on them and wanted them killed and caught. But mm-hmm. they all, I mean, her funeral had 20,000 people at it. And, and there's people traveling from all over the country back in a day where, you know, some people probably didn't even hear about it till after it was over. And, right. And you have to
2: remember, there's, there's a long hostility towards banks, going back to right. Andrew Jackson and the bank wars and the, the populist hostility towards banks, and the, the feeling upon the part of many average Americans, even today, that banks are villainous creations, institutions that are out to cheat them that at the drop of a hat will take away what they've spent their entire life saving for. And given the fact that people lost their entire life savings overnight with the banks closing down, and so many farmers lost their, their farms that their families had had for generations, uh, that's why these people are so popular, because there was this immense sense of, I wish I could have done that to the bank, too, that I had, I had taken out my frustrations. People blamed themselves for the Great Depression. It right. took a generation to stop blaming themselves and realize it was bigger than they were. So, when people are these, you know, they're strong individuals. They're very American characters. They're taking matters in their own hands and they're using violence, which is another long American tradition, to assert some kind of control over their lives.
1: Well, they were also, they were, uh, Clyde was known for murdering policemen, too. That was,
2: and law officials. Like, they were not. Well, c- <laughs> There's a lot of people who'd like to do the same thing, you
1: know. Yeah. Well Bonnie apparently apparently Bonnie never killed anyone. Like all her all her supposed kills have been uh rebuffed and, and found to be falsities.
2: Interesting. So I didn't she, know that.
1: Yeah, she never there was one uh there was one that she was accused for and there were a couple others that were with infused later, few years later, but like she, uh, she's yeah, never she was you know witness and accomplice to things, but she had never actually pulled the trigger on someone.
0: We're talking about how um, despicable some of their actions were. There's, the the movie. Is also quite funny. Uh, we've just like we've talked over a couple seats of Clyde basically at the bank being really nervous about going for it, and then there's not even any money there, and so he forces the bar the bank attendant to go out and tell tell Bonnie uh, that there's no money. Uh, and now we just watch him get into a scuffle with with a guy with a giant uh, giant hatchet. <laughs> but... And they
2: just sped the film up the way they used to in comedies as well. Mm-hmm. And that has to be done deliberately by either the cameraman and the director. Or the editor cutting actual frames out of the film to speed it up like that.
1: Yeah, that's, yeah, the, there, that's the
2: technique. Yeah.
1: There are some scenes where they were going for uh, old, old kind of uh, news footage and and uh, camera picture qualities uh, in certain areas. They were trying to match an aesthetic. Yeah, the, I,
0: I wouldn't. I would say it's trying to be you know like Battle of Algiers or something where it's like gritty documentary style. But yeah, I, I do. Right. I see what you're saying. Where it's like it's it's
1: well it's only it's it's in spots. They had a they had a general look they wanted to go for for the whole thing, but there's some spots where they wanted it to look mm-hmm. authentic at this time.
2: Here comes Michael J. Pollard.
1: He's a
0: he's a mixture of three people. Yep. Uh just for convenience sake as far as making this, yeah, it, an economical yeah. story, but yeah, because they had Bonnie and Clyde had multiple wheelmen well, essentially. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Well they skip they skip Bonnie going to jail. I believe. Yeah. Yes, and, they do, yeah. Their first accomplice and Bonnie went to jail, and then he quit. Um And he picked up at, at that time. He picked up another person while he was waiting for Bonnie to get out.
0: And once again, the way the movie handles it—it's it, essentially the next uh,
2: forty years. He spent the next forty years playing these little kind of namby-pamby characters, this kind of sweet, you know, harmless people. He's. You know, he's like a sheep who wants to be a wolf in this movie, and it just doesn't work. There's just no sense of, he's just like a big puppy dog.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, you got a when you get a uh, Oscar nomination for what you're doing, you get Pigeon, and you don't have, you're not Warren Beatty. Uh, you pick up roles that, you know, for my people, of that it, thing you did. Uh,
1: including Sleepaway Camp 3. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I remember from Roxanne playing the little fire firefighter who wanted to read philosophy, but was embarrassed to go buy the books himself.
0: What I was going to say, once again, is just like the kind of the initial meeting of Bonnie and Clyde, you, you enter, uh, <clears throat> you enter CW into the picture. And it's just like, hey, we rob banks. Isn't that cool? And he's like, I agree with this and I'm going to come along with you. Like, that's that's, you know, that's the right. Approach here.
1: Well, I mean, as soon as he comes along right at the right time, because as soon as we've pretty much got the, the gist of Bunny and Clyde, and you're like, oh, is this going to be this over and over again? We meet him and things start to change. It's at, at, at the just perfect time in the story.
0: I assume these cars are all stolen. Yeah. Yeah, Why Bonnie's not?
2: got her beret. Bonnie's got her beret on now, and that sucker was a massive uh, ripoff in the fashion industry. People sold those things right and left, and to give that Bonnie look, very, very big in the mid to late '60s.
0: Uh, you need you, needed, uh, something the old you needed something to move you past Jackie O's style. And we're off. I know, We can't hear the music, but it's there. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's very fun.
2: Yes, Earl Scruggs, Lester Flats, classic bluegrass.
1: Is it this one? <laughs> <laughs> That's a glamorous-looking shot, Warren Beatty.
0: Seems, the smolder. That seems like his M.O. He's getting his mug yeah. shot. And it's like, yeah, let me make your look as good as possible.
1: The original model inmate or whatever that meme guy is.
0: I mentioned Shirley MacLaine was originally a possibility before Beatty, you know. Attach himself on you also had a uh, Jane Fonda, Tuesday Weld, and Margaret, Leslie Cairn, Carol Lindley, Sue Lennon, and uh, Cher. Oh.
2: Yeah, look at the framing of this one. Yeah. There's the there's the remnants of that from the original screenplay. But you can sense they dunaway's sexual frustration that she really wants to be with him and then they end up popping his eye open he was pretending to be asleep, but Michael J. Potter looking at the both of them, that could have easily led him to that kind of a scene of the menage a trois. They
1: already have a new car. Mm
0: -hmm. We've, um, We've referenced, I've referenced, you know, how there's a lot of humor going on here. You guys have never referenced the kind of the actions that their characters eventually start taking. This is a point in the film where the tone has some very quick shifts, which we see throughout it. Uh, where you're going to get, you know, you get another robbery, but you also have CW outside who decides to park the car, um, which is, you know, humorous in itself because why? That's stupid, but what have you? Um, but because of that, it leads to a horrific murder that, that mm-hmm. uh, Clyde <laughs> commits for you know the first time in this movie. And just in the way it's it's shot. I mean, Shirley Robert, you know, plenty about this as far as uh, you know, a gunshot actually going off and actually having an impact all in the same shot. You don't see that before this movie very often in that way. Right.
2: Well, Arthur Penn said that he wanted to make he wanted to show how that we were a violent society. And he felt that movies had never really shown what violence was like. And the problem is, is that the movie showed what violence was like. It gets very bloody, and yet. It's almost cartoon-like, particularly with the slow motion at the end, and it didn't stop people from wanting to see violence. It inspired more violence. So in many ways, what Arthur Penn was setting out to do with this film backfired completely. <laughs> of course, there is no argument whether who actually really directed the film. Lots of people on the set said Warren Beatty was the reason it was as good as it was, and you look at Arthur Penn's other movies, none of them are quite have this same level of impact.
1: Yeah, there was a uh, 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 that shot. Ooh.
0: Yeah, it's like yeah. right in the face. Like it's a it's a yeah. it's a graphic shot even for now. Like it's like. A well, I think
1: Arthur Penn wasn't going to do it. Or, or sorry, Arthur Penn, the director wasn't going to do it, and then the the DP had set up the shot for that to show it. Because mm-hmm. he cause he was just kind of like, well, I would like to try it, and there was apparently many arguments with Warren Beatty.
0: Because well, he's a demanding um, he, he's a demanding and, actor and, and he's a producer he has a say he knows what he wants and that's you know obviously he went into directing watching,
2: like
1: everybody was like they fought a lot but it was pleasant but it was they're pleasant.
2: watching uh, Gold Diggers of nineteen thirty three and the We're in the Money's uh, scene which is a fairly famous one in musical history mm-hmm. but it's interesting that you know they're they're juxtaposing what traditional American film was with what's really happening out there and the consequences kind of fantasy world that that, uh, the movies were displaying.
1: Clyde is not afraid to kill. So when he says it.
2: It's also interesting in traditional gangster issues there's always this interacting films and and uh, what they're really doing because of the gangster genre but then what was it Pretty Boy Floyd or John Dillinger was shot outside of the movie because he wanted to go see a it's
0: Dillinger. film Dillinger yeah,
2: yeah. Dillinger
0: Floyd was shot like a getaway
2: and Bonnie wanting to be in the movies yeah she was a big film buff Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> I find those kind of facts fascinating. <laughs> it's not surprising when you see, like, like, someone, like into ta- into someone like
1: it was into oh, talkies.
0: So someone like Elmore Leonard kind of crafting characters around those kind of facts, where it's like, yeah, they're you know, they're criminals, but they also have lives. They also like they're stuff. Peop- yeah, they're people.
2: <laughs> yeah, get Shorty's one of the great films. Mm-hmm.
0: I just started watching. The, there's the new Epics Get Shorty TV series. Um it it's good it's just it's not elmore leonard which is kind of problem problematic for me it's like well i I like what i'm watching i'm just not liking it as a piece of elmore leonard's work but the film gets shorty yes it's a it's a great screenplay for sure captures his voice which i always like seeing in movies
2: How can you not like these two?
0: They're always smiling at each other.
2: <laughs> well, that's part of what the film is playing with, too, is that it's violence that's sexy. And and they're they're both turned on by it, and you can see, you know, him trying to work through his issues here, but she's definitely turned on by it. Then the audience, too, I mean, the, the whole issue of the film creating a taste for violence in American culture, I mean, you know who Bosley Crowther was, the... Uh, film critic for the New York Times for about 30 years. He was the most terrifying critic in America. His, his work had make and break films. And he came out violently in prose against this film for being so violent, for making two killers, you know, be happy-go-lucky and sexy. And he got fired from the New York Times for that because the Times really felt like he was so out of touch with what film audiences wanted that they couldn't keep him on anymore. But, you know, this film toppled the most important film critic in America.
0: Meanwhile, Roger Ebert was like a few months in, and this is what he claimed to be like the first masterpiece he had seen as a film critic. And Pauline Kael wrote like this huge essay in the New Yorker. Um, that... Right. It's
2: what it's really what made her the dominant critic. Uh-huh. This the review of this film started building her reputation. But the film bombed when it first came out, and Warren Beatty basically went back in and begged and bullied and ultimately blackmailed uh, the guy that was in charge of distribution and basically. Made him think that he had some dirt on him, and then they re-released the film and in a wider way, and that's what led it to being a success. But it was it was a complete failure the first time it was released. Well, yeah, yeah,
0: well, Jack seven. Warner hated this movie, he, and I, yeah. I, I'd love to see, especially after watching Feud on FX, the uh, the Betty Davis. Uh,
2: By but, the uh, way, you're watching the yep, very first yep. attempt to show fellatio in America. Yeah, yeah, I was
1: just about to say that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Anyway, I was watching few, they had Stanley Tucci playing Jack Jack Warner, and it's like, I, I, I'd love to see a behind-the-scenes movie about Bonnie and Clyde, Stanley Tucci as Jack Warner, just, like, hating Bonnie and Clyde so much, like, and that's part of why bombed. he just, like, he didn't, he released it as a B-movie, like, he just went out to, like, drive into it, and it didn't really do much, and so, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a success upon its initial release, um, and Beatty wasn't even, like, he, he accepted, what, like, a percentage of the film as opposed to, um, like, a lot, you know, like, a fee, uh, which, you know, worked for his, to his advantage because the movie, you know, went on to make like $50 million, which is huge at that time. So he got, you know, a good cut of percentage of the profits for that.
2: But, I mean, watching this film in the midst of the sexual revolution, you know, really starting to hit its height for audiences having to deal with sexual hangups like this. And typically in movies, it had been women with the sexual hangups and men who were the ones who had no problem with it. And again, they flip-flopped this whole thing, where Beatty, who was again a notorious ladies' man, is the one having sexual issues. It really allowed him to play against type. And Cary Grant had already been doing this sort of thing when he was getting older and still being cast with much younger women. The charade with uh, Audrey Hepburn, where it was his really major last major romantic film, and the trick there is she's chasing him uh, rather than the other way around, and that's pretty much what you get here. They've stolen that trick from Cary Grant. Here we go.
0: the film's other hero.
1: (laughs) And this is, this is Hackman was like, well, I'll do this, and if this one doesn't work, maybe I should rethink things. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, it's his breakout role.
1: Yeah. This film gave us like, you know, really, I mean, Beatty takes off from here, we get Faye Dunaway, we get, uh, you know, Gene Hackman, uh, Gene Wilder. Estelle Parsons. Like, yeah, uh, Estelle Parsons. Parsons. He wins an yeah. Oscar
0: he's, yeah. yeah, like it's
1: a crazy launching point.
0: Even though, like, it's a, you know, a contentious time for Hackman, who's like, should I keep acting or not? And he, you know, he works so well in this movie. It does seem like he's kind of just along for the ride. He's like, yeah, I'll have fun here. Like, because that's, like, what he's right. like. He's such a. You know, by comparing, I mean, even though CW is, like, the goofball, he's just, like, a yeah, my brother's here. I'm going to rob banks. Why not? Let's do this.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, if this was made more modern, Buck would be a much darker oh, yeah. character. He'd, he'd be the his, tor- his arrival, his arrival yeah. would be like this discomforting thing that happens. Yeah. Even though in real life he was coming to convince uh, Clyde to go straight. He had just got out of jail and he, it came with the intention of trying to get him to like go straight and then winds up back on the trail with his brother
0: yeah they take like all the morality of every character in real life and just put it all into estelle parsons which just by default makes her annoying
2: well she's middle-class american in this
0: yeah movie. i mean you could i mean just looking at how she presents herself how she reacts to seeing cw in his skivvies like, it's skitties. Um, it's, it's just like you, you get a, a very quick understanding of who this person is versus who these other people are.
2: And then the film spent its time ridiculing her and turning her into this shrieking, shrill, annoying person as a way of, again, rejecting uh, mainstream mainstream morality.
0: And she wins the Oscar. <laughs>
2: yeah,
0: yeah.
2: <laughs> it's pretty much the only one that did. Yeah,
0: the only actor that won yep. the Oscar in this movie. <laughs>
2: Yeah,
1: well, oh, great. Ha- oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was I was just gonna mention that you know Hackman and uh, Pollard were both up for supporting, which usually cancel each other out. Mm-hmm. Right. Got two people from the same film. Well, I mean, all of them. I mean, they, like they, the
0: Godfather movies would have. Yeah. Yeah, I mean Beatty and Dunaway. That you know, they all the actors were up for Oscars in this movie. <laughs> you know, yeah, only Estelle Parsons and the cinematography take a prize. No, she
1: actually, yeah, they actually get that right, that she's not a cigar smoker. Like, it was a big thing, like, in Bonnie's bio while they were out during their spree that she was a cigar smoker because she took that picture. Because mm-hmm. they, they would, when they get uh, that, ran it out of that apartment in that shootout, they left the, all the film from this, uh, the photos they were shooting here, and, uh the police found the one with her, the cigar, and they put it through all the papers, so everybody thought she was this gun-toting, cigar-chewing badass. And she once told somebody that they took hostage and let go, that, please tell the press I don't smoke cigars.
2: Hmm. Well, the the screenwriters are uh, David Newman and Robert Benton, and they had become famous for writing an article in Esquire in July 1964 called The New Sentimentality, and essentially, it was pointing out what was cool and what wasn't cool. And the Beatles were cool, but so much else wasn't. And their their initiative in writing the screenplay was to try to create a whole range of what was cool and to ridicule and put down. So it's basically that that article is what they're translating into this film screenplay more than anything else.
1: What are the kids into? We'll make
2: mm-hmm.
0: that
2: hats. <laughs> yeah. Violence and and sex and uh, you know breaking the rules and uncon- unconventionality and, fighting the man yeah and all the authority all the authority figures in the film are ridiculed they're they're ridiculous looking characters they're the ones who lie and 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 cheat and break you know break promises and and do all the things that you can't trust somebody
1: and we we barely get their perspective their true perspective on anything either
2: no. No, I mean, the whole film is. Uh, oh, go ahead. The whole film is just flipping the bird at a middle class America, who, by the way, didn't like the movie at all.
1: <laughs>
2: it definitely is a movie that that function off of teenagers and high school kids and and college students going to see it over and over again, because for them they were Bonnie and Clyde. And they were, you know, they were fighting against the very same things. And, and they felt like the, when they, in the movie, when Bonnie and Clyde are shot in such a violent, you know, almost ballet, uh, slow motion film, uh, there was silence in the film, in the audiences. People were utterly quiet uh, when that happened. And then people left the movie stunned. Young people did.
0: Brandon, you mentioned Titanic earlier, and it's interesting to see the number of comparisons you really can't make, despite the obvious, for kind of subtextual qualities of what those films are tr- attempting to do. I mean, you have these, you know, two essentially romantic stories about forbidden love to an extent, um, dealing with class-based societies within a, you know, a structure that's established um, that ends in tragedy. I mean, there's, and they're, you know, both mm-hmm. huge, huge box office successes. Uh, change things in various ways for how films are made.
1: Yeah, no, it it, it's just it's crazy to think of. Like, I mean, it had you know it had the success and money and stuff, and then something like I don't know. It's crazy that something that makes as much money as like an Avatar that has no at least I don't see it in America this lasting big effect. Yet the movie made a ton, a ton of money, still the highest grossing global film. But there was no like effect like a Bonnie and Clyde or a uh, Titanic had in being the phenomenon
0: not outside unless of you want to make, just say not, not outside of film 3D but yeah
2: well it's because Avatar is just you know every science fiction cliche he could steal he put in there and then he basically it's dances with wolves with aliens
0: yeah but you can say the same thing about Titanic as far as the story that's being told but it. I mean it, I think that movie has a much greater lasting effect as far as the kind of the, the way people could recall the movie for its score, themes,
2: lines, characters. Yeah. But, here's... you know, going, going back to what the audience thought at the time, I found that a book called Nixon Land, somebody, some teenager, uh, had written in a letter uh, to the local film critic and said, Bonnie and Clyde is not a film for adults. And I believe much of its degradation had come from that fact. But degradation, she meant that the people were putting it down. Adults are used to being entertained in theaters, coming out smiling and humming the title songs. The reason it was so silent, so horribly silent in the theater at the end of the film, was because we liked Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow. We identified with them, and their deaths made us realize that newspaper headlines are not so far removed from our quiet dorm rooms.
1: So even back then, there was a push to have more real, you know, films portray things a bit more realistically or...
2: Well, that's certainly the direction it's going in from '67 on, and in '68 mm-hmm. the production code is officially killed off and replaced with the uh, yeah, yeah. something close to the rating system that we have now. But as '68 and '69, '70, and we get to the early '70s, as the directors are pushing things, and you know, Easy Rider comes along and shows that you can make a film with a lot of violence in it, and pot, and so forth, and it'll make a ton of money. And so there, there is this whole move to a more realistic portrayal of, of violence, but then. You take a look at what Bonnie and Clyde and the Wild Bunch do, that's not particularly realistic with all the slow-motion stuff. That's very highly stylized.
1: Yeah. It's it, it's styla- stylized, but the 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 presentation of it is far more real than, hey, you're going to go out with me, see, going, going over to Jimmy Buckets over there and shoot him up. Compared to the gangster films that were prior to this in in the states,
2: well, there's certainly a, more is blood a, involved, but
1: is it's a very more grounded.
2: Go back and watch the Public Enemy with with Jimmy Cagney. There's yes, the shooting's coming from behind a a, a window, but it's it's pretty violent comparatively speaking. But you know, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. You know, there is a lot more blood and there's a lot more consequences and there's but the cart but the violence is portrayed in Bonnie and Clyde and even Wild Bunch. As as violent and bloody as it is, it's even more cartoonish in some ways yeah. because of the stylization.
0: But yeah, you read, you and reach and it. it doesn't re- feel you, real. You read, yes, you reach a limit where it becomes cartoony in its own way. Where it's right. it's it it's so intense, and in addition to kind of the tone of the film you're watching and the actors on screen, you're like, well, it's the similar reaction that I have to a lot of the kind of the current Tarantino movies that come out, where it's like he he very clearly knows what he's doing where something like Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs, it's all a lot more implied than you're actually seeing. Something like Django Unchained, it's like it's so over the top. It's like, yeah, because that's not the kind of the point. Like It's, it, it's fetishizing the violence to an extent because it's like, okay, we, we have all this other stuff going on, but let's get to these action scenes. Okay, let's make it as brutal and crazy as possible to kind of lessen the impact so you're not focused too much on that aspect compared to what really matters as far as the characters go.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it may sound seem over-the-top cartoonish, but uh, these two uh, criminals were, at their death, both shot, reported anywhere from 26 to
2: 52 times each. Yeah, but... <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> it's... Well, this is also the first movie to really use bu- uh, swibs. bullet squibs. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, that Which... I've seen,
2: I've, I don't know if you've ever seen the actual car. that it's It's been shown around the country from time to time, mm-hmm. and it's full of bullet holes.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that comes with the changing of the tones, though. Like, I mean, yes, the movie's violent, and it's not kind of, it's not celebrating the violence when it happens. It's just showing it kind of brutally as is. But the, I mean, and the here movie, comes
2: Estelle Parsons screaming her head off.
0: Uh huh. This is the scene. I assume they showed in the clip in the Oscars. <laughs>
2: <laughs> ah, but also, yeah. But you remember that with the the, the violence, where the guy's shot in his face and he's along with the car through the window. There's nothing cartoonish about that scene. Mm-mm. That was truly shocking at the time. Nobody it's ever hor- seen like it. Still looks horrific. Yeah. Cuz it's I mean, real.
1: Yeah, if we saw it any in any different kind of style, like if we saw it like straight up or anything like it's because of the way the glass is and how you, you, it looks like you're almost there in the seat seeing someone really shot and that's what works for it. It shows enough, it keeps enough away and it hangs there long enough just to make it impactful still today. All right. It's like when, almost like when uh, Mo Green gets it and the yeah, Godfather, right.
0: like right. we're
1: like, oh wow, that one's still. <laughs> Which I, you know, this movie definitely, I feel like we get it. What, like two years later, the Wild Bunch, like Peckinpah, kind of take with this, with this and run with it.
2: Right, but it's interesting. This is almost a cartoon scene where. Estelle Parsons is screaming, and they pick her up and haul her into the car. They're driving away.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's almost like a Keystone Cop scene.
1: It's, it happened in real life. She was she actually had a little dog, and she they all managed to get in this car, and she was out in the streets, and they just managed to find her and pick her up amidst all the shooting.
2: And that's I, I'm sure that's true, but the way it's portrayed, it, it looks like a Keystone Cop film almost, and the gangster genre is is played out these cops and robbers scenes so many times it's, it's again they're pulling off the american tradition of film but then they're adding in things that make it much more like the french new wave more mm-hmm. violent more honest different kinds of ways of showing that but you're talking aaron's mentioned a couple of times the shift in tones in this film it, it's not what you expect yeah you don't expect a gangster film to have this kind of humor except the fact that the original gangster films do like when jimmy cadney asked the guy in the Sealed trunk, you need some air, bam, 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 bam. And on the while, while he's chewing on a blow like a chicken, so
1: well, and also on the other end of things, where when you're your fun road tripping film, you don't want it to get so crazy and dark and intense at times, it's, it's back and forth.
2: What did Hitchcock say that you had to have the audience laugh, or they or the exactly terrible. Yeah. Fittingly, and the, then you could ratchet it up even more after they laughed. The, uh,
0: mm-hmm. the, the one time Bonnie has lost her cool so far is
2: because of the other woman in the car with her. <laughs> she's... And the fact she hasn't had any sex. She says, no lovemaking.
0: That helps as well. I mean, obviously, she's frustrated. It's just the, the thing that pushes her over the edge is just how ridiculous it still parses me. <laughs>
1: They had a they had a path on their spree that was like uh, along state lines. And the FBI didn't have laws in place at the time where if they crossed a state line, the cops had to stop. There was no jurisdiction. And they played the line from Texas up to Minnesota. And they would just do this loop constantly. And they'd they'd uh, try to plan it around where people's families would live so they could visit and see their their families. So the gang was a little bigger. Than what we see here at, at times, but, and cleverer, yeah. But that was what they do. That's how they, you know, never got caught. It was because they were playing with legal boundaries that weren't in place during the during this time.
2: Well, those those legal boundaries were were not there in the late 60s, early 70s, because my brothers used to go drag racing, and they're older than I am, and they would go drag racing, and the point was to get across the city line from Garden Grove to, from Santa Ana to Garden Grove because the Santa Ana cops couldn't chase him anymore. But I think it's also interesting the the whole notion of celebrity that this film plays with that they're reading about themselves and that's thrilling and reading reading letters that they've written in, in the paper and, and their sense of their public impression. You you've you obviously researched it. Did Bonnie and Clyde have that obsession with how they were being portrayed in the in the newspapers of the day? It
1: started out they they, they did at first and then they couldn't go anywhere because they would get they feared getting noticed. So they would. They would have uh, people that would go out and shop for them. They could. They would have to. They'd have to camp outside. And this group really got fed up with each other from living out of a car, living in tents, because they just couldn't go anywhere. They if they'd have to be desperate for food or money or guns, which like Clyde was obsessed with this one kind of gun, probably like an R A N or something like that. And uh, he would always. He was known for stealing them. They'd always be found with the stuff, but they were uh, on the run. They hungry, getting sick of being in such close proximity with one another. Um, Some weren't cool with uh, the constant cop killings and they'd split up from time to time, but they, I don't, they don't, they don't include it in the movie, but Bonnie got like fatally injured at one point and uh, they her it was her and WD and, and Clyde and they fell they the car went off some bridge and there was a fire and it burned her leg like up to the down to the bone and they couldn't go to a hospital or anything like that. So she had to be like carried and had this awful limp for like their last year.
0: Yeah, when they when she had when they got when they get shot up at the end, like it's actually she couldn't even get out of the car, which is why she's yeah in the car. I mean, it's different in the movie obviously. But,
1: but yeah, but they yeah, they were they were they thought the celebrity thing was cool at first and they, they played around with it uh, by kidnapping people, doing crazy stuff, killing some, leaving some or leaving some go just for fun because they would love to read about it and, and see but and change their perception through people. But it that ran out real fast because
0: well, yeah, I mean, you're mentioning already the kind of. The fact that they don't have like a steady home that they're living out of or what have you, as opposed to some of the other right. you know me you know someone like Al Capone, obviously is a criminal empire or someone like John Dillinger has more stability, so to speak, where so seeing the them having movies about themselves or inspired by their actions or what have you, they were more of a fan of that. <laughs> like they can they can get they can get into that kind of phase. right.
1: The place where they, they the the apartment they had that they just got ran out of, um, they could have been there for much longer, but Clyde and Buck would get drunk and loud and all the time, and people around the area thought they were uh, bootleggers. And the cops didn't know they were going to get Bonnie and Clyde from there. They thought they were getting some illegal, uh, like, bootlegger, like, liquor bootleggers or whatever. And it was Bonnie and Clyde
0: or the Barrow Gang. This whole sequence is. Well, it's like a combination of things but like the the idea is that they're you know they're picking on this uh this cop now and then he's the one that comes back at the end to kind of get them but that actually didn't happen the cop that gets him at yeah. the and had never met bonnie and clyde before or just one of the cops involved because you know, the... this is like a real person right that this that this mm-hmm. cop is depicting
1: Yeah, there's a lot but of again, those
2: the, the ridiculing of the authority figures is so central to this film
0: mm-hmm. as is that
1: mustache
0: I <laughs> wonder when they're getting these pictures developed yeah, this is true.
2: They go to the local Walgreens. Okay. You'd have to go to a professional photographer I, I, or <laughs> to develop it yourself.
0: Well, because there are so many actual pictures of Bonnie and Clyde, too, so it's neat to, you know... Well, some more...
1: people might be happy to help
0: them, but yeah, yeah, or they the way just, the public ad, Or they give it to, but, you know, relatives or what have you. I, mean,
1: I don't know what it was like to live back then, but, man, I would have been scared to death of running into Bonnie and Clyde. Because it wasn't like the papers weren't reporting their murders and everything else. But I mean, because it it wasn't just, you know, you know, there's the, of course, the bankers and stuff, which people might have cheered on. But there's like law officials, bystanders like it.
0: I mean, if I was doing my job, as in I I stayed put and didn't run after them outside, I'd probably be more or less in the clear (laughs) Yeah, if I wasn't a law enforcement going at you know specifically going after, but I probably could have helped as well. I picture myself as the, in the as the Gene Wilder in this scenario essentially. and yeah. just kind of like, oh, this this seems like a fun car ride, but I don't need to stick around with this.
1: Well, those car rides either either ended up in you being dropped off in some random place or dead. So <laughs> that's what that they show a a happy one. <laughs> in this movie, but those didn't always end up that way.
0: Oh, what's the thing about Gene Hackman doing that where he climbs over the bank thing? Um, it's like something he read about that, like, Cagney would do mm-hmm. or something like that? Like, there's some fact about that
2: You know, the cool professionalism of, of you know, Clyde here,
0: yeah, I was about allowing to say. the
2: guy to keep his own money.
0: Yeah. Their whole approach in this scene is, like, the, the, the coolest they could be as far as looking at people robbing a bank. Mm-hmm.
1: Like, the cleanest and fanciest they look.
0: Here it is, uh, Gene Hackman, he, w- he did the leap over the cage because that was a stunt that John Dillinger would do, and Don Jill- Dillinger, Dill- he was inspired by seeing that in Zora movies. That's that's Okay. <laughs> he huh. he likes Zora movies so much, he likes seeing that, so that's why he started doing that like, little like cool move of jumping over the thing.
1: You know, it's funny, uh, Dillinger and uh, Pretty Boy Floyd or whatever, they, mm-hmm. they sent uh, flowers and stuff to both their funerals. Mm-hmm. Bonnie and Clyde's.
0: Oh. That music's kicked back in again. <laughs> These getaways. Mm-hmm. You just need the to Burma see, State like, is like car chases going on at this time. Because you know, there's no way around it. You just have to show a car chase. <laughs> like,
2: yeah. You know, the car completely changed how crime was done. It was it offered a getaway. Mm-hmm. Before the before that, you know, the horses weren't exactly the same equivalent, but mm-hmm. automobiles were part of why you get organized crime in the twenties.
1: Was this the last era of like celebrated outlaws? Because you know, the West, old West had. All the guys with nicknames and legendary stories, and I mean, then, you, you just, have you have the Depression era, which had you know the Capones and stuff like that. Is
0: there any? I mean, I'd still I, up afterwards. to the up to the eighties. You still have what like Hoffa and uh, like Gotti. I mean, you still have yeah. things like that going on. Like, I mean, but it's, with, pro- it's not as like yes, it's probably not as celebrated per se.
2: Yes, but, you don't know think yeah. the Godfather doesn't celebrate criminal figures? I mean, in real life, in real in reality. I mean, in real like the public and the godfather People. created a sense of the mafia being glamorous true
1: i can't risk my life in oklahoma
2: <laughs> nobody wants that no i've been to oklahoma
0: I've driven through it. It's very flat. Oh yeah, I don't. I don't like not knowing which way the ocean is because I'm in California. That's how I like it. Yeah. And you're landlocked. I get it, Brandon. But still, <laughs> <laughs> I'm out here. I'm like, I like knowing that the mountains are on that side and the ocean's on this side.
1: I like to see like buildings or some sort of civilization, mm-hmm. and I. I I, didn't, I did not see that in my drive through Oklahoma.
0: You think they had tailors on set?
1: I don't know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like in life, like in the logic of this movie, because they have a lot of nice clothes.
2: I think you underestimate how often men had to wear suits. It's not about even lo- poor men. You you didn't go out in public without wearing a suit and hat.
0: Fair enough. You just didn't. That that's fine, but it's like they are well tailored suits. Well,
2: they like, are movie stars.
0: I get that, and this is a movie that's glamorizing them. It's just it's. It, I do find it a little interesting. <laughs> and no, you're exactly right. I'm not thinking about the fact that yes, men did just wear suits all the time uh, in that day.
2: Yes, I'm sure Warren Beatty had a you know had everything tailored properly for him. I don't know that Clyde. I my memory is the picture that Clyde Barrow and, and, Clyde Clyde and Bonnie Clyde were not that well-dressed.
1: I mean, how good can you be on the run like that? <coughs> yeah. And the real... I think the real-life Bonnie had a very short uh, very Mia Farrow Rosemary's baby, Rosemary's baby haircut.
0: Yeah, that's why it's interesting to see the kind of the pictures that they chose at the beginning of the film because they're like, they're the most representative of the actors portraying them uh, compared to what you see most of the time, which is the people that do not really look like were Beatty or Faye Dunaway. <laughs> right.
1: Well, I mean, you see pictures of Clyde and I mean.
0: They're better. He's he's, mo- he's more suited to the part. Yes.
1: But he looks such, like a kid, like such a child, mm-hmm. even like to like, I mean, to Beatty, like Beatty looks like a. Full-grown forty-year-old man in comparison with what the real Clyde yeah. looks like he looks like a pictures. real
0: Emil Hirsch, some would say.
1: There, yeah, yeah. And here There's comes a, Gene, Wilder. Gene Wilder.
0: Classic Gene Wilder.
1: <laughs> the curls were just starting to grow. Yeah,
0: I like it's... that. G, young Gene Wilder has the shorter hair. Like that's how you can tell if it's an early Gene Wilder role because he, can't... Yes. <laughs> like the producers, like it, it. Yeah, it's complete. It's like it's, it's all chopped. Then it starts expanding out. By the time you get to like Willy Wonka, it's like boom. Mm He has Tim Burton hair, which is fitting.
2: You know, I'm trying to remember how much the screenwriters actually took from Bonnie and Clyde's story, and I suspect most of it was they just simply let the story be the story and didn't worry for more than a flavor of actual Bonnie and Clyde. Right. Have to be historically accurate.
0: Nor does it have to, given the kind of intentions of the film, where it's being made in the model of a gangster film, while still embracing so many different ambitious ideas of what we could really do with filmmaking at this point.
1: You take the interesting stuff that you want to use, you put it together, you see if you can connect tissue, you make the tissue that can connect, you dump stuff that doesn't work you. you
2: Well, are Arthur Penn's the one that pushed it back towards more of a realistic depiction Mm-hmm. Of the thirties.
1: And th- this is something that actually happened.
0: <laughs> Just imagine <laughs> <Jean> Gene Wilder. <laughs>
1: Hackman's would, good in this part,
0: too. Oh, yeah, for sure. People don't think about Gene Wilder when they think of this movie often, I think. No, kind of it's
2: forget, always, it's always
1: kind of a shock. You're like, oh, yeah, he's in this Yeah. when he pops up.
2: rolling the windows up like that's going to do any good.
0: I like the look on his face, it's like,
2: <laughs> He's, like, giving, like, a Paul Rubens look right there.
0: <laughs> like Gene Hackman. Yep, that's exactly, yeah. Gene Hackman's, like,
1: a riot in this scene. Now, this would be the start of what would lead us to welcome to Mooseport.
0: <laughs> it's funny in the um, on the Blu-ray in the the book, like the Blu-ray book that it has, it lists like Gene Hackman's credits and it doesn't include Welcome to Mooseport. It Just says the last movie was Behind Enemy Lines. Not the a, other not a huge not a point huge point step up know. either, but still.
1: Did you like Royal Bombs? You'll love Behind Enemy Lines.
0: He's to be lines! You need to help me. I've landed behind enemy lines. They really packed this car. Yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Blanche is into it now. She's like, yeah, all right. Sure, let's take hostages. That seems like me. <laughs>
1: Oh, oh, gangster humor. Oh, so comforting. Now, this part, like, where she, uh, he tells her he's an undertaker. And she's like, we're done. And then drops him off. That's not how, uh, how it happened. Like, apparently, Bonnie, like, thought it was hilarious and told the guy that, you know, you're going to be the one who uh, does the autopsy on my body when I die. And he was actually called in to identify their bodies. The real, the Undertaker. Hmm. Interesting. So it came full circle. But she was actually amused by the fact that
2: he was an Undertaker. You know, that's something I would want in this film. Like that would. Be yeah. Such a-
1: I thought, you know, when I watched the movie, I thought, "Oh, that must be how it really went," or something like that. and It was complete opposite, which I'm like, the other way sounds much much more interesting,
0: fun. Well, I mean, for a film like this, I mean, you playing so much of kind of societal commentary, you have to, it's basically just making it very overt by saying mm-hmm. like, I'm the Undertaker. And it's like, it just brings reality rushing back into there. Well,
1: yeah, it, it brings, well, like, I mean, it, it makes it look like they fear death when they actually, I mean, they probably didn't want to die, but they knew that was their, they, they weren't going to get away with this forever and that they're, we're going to end up being dead.
0: Yeah, I mean, for the sake of, like, a cinematic story, you have to make sure to kind of keep these true. characters in check so I can see why it's... Well, if, and, Yeah, you have to
1: make them fear death so we fear their death. Even as as despicable as they are, we're along this journey with them.
0: I mean, I'm sure Emile Hirsch's reaction in the miniseries is much different. It's more like true, true life, because they have the time to flesh it out a bit more. <laughs> I'm
1: sorry to the listeners that uh, we're wasting our time on this and not doing that. That's, yeah. uh... <laughs>
0: the History Channel <laughs> miniseries. Was that where it aired? I, it's is one it... of those.
1: It's either that like or like, okay.
0: or it's not AMC. It's,
1: uh, it's the same people who did that uh, Houdini one with Brody.
0: Uh-huh. Houdini.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Made by it. Because that, that movie's like the, in the style of a Guy Ritchie movie, which is why I kind of like it. It's just like really like over the
2: top.
1: <laughs> Houdini? Me-Dini? You-Dini? No.
2: Houdini. Sounds like a bad Batman impersonation.
1: Let's do it. Predators, Adrian Brody.
0: The girlfriend um, of Gene Wilder in this film, uh, she's played by Evan, Evan Evans Evans. Uh, that's the wife of John Frankenheimer. Oh, okay. Evans Evans. That can't be a real name. It is apparently. Never trust
1: someone with a double a double name. That's what they say. Like Ray Ray? Ray Ray.
0: Or what's Michael Rooker's name in Slither?
1: Oh, I just watched that.
2: So did I. Gosh, no. And then, of course, there's Major, 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 Major in Catboy, <laughs> too.
0: <laughs> Grant Grant. Grant right, Grant, right. there you right, right, go. Right, yeah. I mentioned uh, Warner and how he hated this movie. He never changed his mind. <laughs> Even after it became a success, he always hated this movie. Stick to your guns! <laughs> he just, he, didn't, he did not care for this. He, he didn't, he wasn't a fan of Warren Beatty. Like, he he rejected playing some role in some movie he wanted to make. And so he wasn't happy about that. And he just hated this movie. <laughs> Warren Beatty had the last
2: laugh. interesting shooting all this in a cornfield, middle of middle America.
1: You know, it's it's funny you mentioned that, but like, how many potentially great films never even got made because just one dude didn't like it? Mm-hmm. Lots of them. Lots of them. Yeah, it's crazy how it
2: works. A lot of bad movies got made because one person wanted to see them.
0: Right, yeah. Also, Robert, you mentioned cornfields. Think of how many iconic movies feature cornfields from back in this day. Yep. You don't see many cornfields in movies anymore. Yeah, here's where they were trying to make it look like... (laughs) Accurate. Yeah, they put like a thing over the lens, and it kind of gets this this interesting look to it.
2: Yeah, the cinematographer Burnett Guffey hated making this movie and he won an Oscar for it.
0: Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) He he just, it broke every rule he'd ever had about cinematography. He just, they constantly made him do stuff that, like this, that wasn't how he was, was trained to believe what a film should look like. And when he got hired, other people were looking to hire him after this movie because of this movie and he would ask them, you know, what, what, what are you thinking about? They said, well, I want you to do what you did in Bonnie and Clyde. He just turned the films down.
1: I mean, this was a film breaking many kind of molds. I mean, we're still early in getting away from that uh, uh, kind of like studio machine process.
0: Well, yeah, it's enduring. I mean, it's a a new wave film, but you're also entering new, kind yeah. of this way where a tour filmmaker is going to start coming along. Producer-driven films go away, and director-driven films start to be a thing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And how funny that we bounced back.
1: Well, I mean, there is bounce back cuz i don't know there's i mean there was franchising franchising i mean it started kind of getting away like totally in the, like the 80s after uh heaven's gate was the first big warning like maybe we shouldn't be putting all our faith in directors and director
0: yeah well after the 80s it became it became some of this kind of mix where it's like okay let's just make Yeah it collaborative. yeah it's a hybrid so yeah you get like for example, you get something like Ruckheimer working with Bay or Tony Scott, and it feels like a product of both of their minds. And it, it looks like mm-hmm. a representation of what they all want to do.
1: But you also get a sense of it coming back in the, I mean, the 90s with the independent scene. Oh, yeah, for sure.
0: I'm too. So it's, it's just on
1: a smaller scale. You're, you're, yeah, your auteur films are always going to be there. It's just what form they have in the decade or their mm-hmm. prominence is... Mm-hmm.
2: Well, you have to remember the Artura thing is more of a European idea. Right. It never really happened. And I, and you, you see Sidney Lumet, just write his, his memoir, Making Movies. It's a great little book, by the way, called Making Movies. And he said the Arturo theory is nonsense. And Orson Welles even said that it wasn't how things worked either, even though he did most of what was on a film. It's a collaborative effort. The Europeans didn't really have a studio system the same way we did. And so, you, you know, somebody like Godard and Truffaut are making such low-budget films that, it, it is auteur. It's what uh, Cassavetes was doing over here with Shadows in the late fifties and then uh, Faces in the mid sixties. Mm-hmm. It's it's that's an auteur film. But even he said that it was a collaborative effort. So oh, yeah, the directors films, yes, are, yeah. the yeah. directors under the studio system that made an impact that we remember, used to do something called cutting in the camera. They would only film exactly what they wanted up in the final thing because they were not in charge of editing. The studios right. were in charge of editing, and they didn't even get invited into the process. So they just simply were. That's why Howard Hawks and John Ford uh, basically shot only what they wanted to end up in the film. So there wasn't much the producer could do to change what the film was going to look like.
0: Which is why Jack Horner hates this movie. It's so completely different from what he's used to working with. Right. Meanwhile, you, War, Warren Beatty, who's also producer on this film, is like, "Well, <laughs> this, is, this is what I got."
1: Which is funny, with uh, you know, you mentioned like shooting a minimal amount to keep. You'd get to like, like the, the horror genre. would get the opposite in the like late '80s when they were having MPAA battles where they'd shoot too much, so they'd have like tons of stuff to cut to leave in what
2: they really wanted. Yeah, you so talk that's about. another trick the old directors used to do. They would put stuff in they knew they didn't want there, and they knew it was really bad, so that it would get cut, and then they would be allowed to keep the stuff they really wanted in there.
0: It's a whole different topic, but I mean, talking about auteur theory and its validity or whatnot, you can mm-hmm. apply that to the horror genre in general and how that's evolved over the years as far as right. where control lies. I mean, even now you have something like Bloomhouse Productions, which, you know, probably I mean it's still collaborative or whatnot, but you certainly have a we talk about franchising with the bigger films. That's, you know, it's own little franchise right there. That's been very successful given the, mm-hmm. kind of the the way budgets are being used versus the return.
1: I was using, I was using the term mature in a very generic sense. Oh yeah, for sure. And yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: <laughs> it's just an interesting topic. Yeah.
2: No, but you can definitely see in the late 60s, early 70s, the rise of the director and the, the as, as studios were bought out by corporations in the mid to late 60s, and studio audiences were shrinking, and then something like this, and Easy Rider comes along, and you know, on a very low budget film, you make a ton of money, and the, the people who bought out the movies series, "Well, that's what we'll do. We'll just give, we'll just give the director the budget, and he'll produce this enormously profitable film." But as that but, began to bomb, you saw the businessmen of that period looking for ways to cut back on costs and to control the the, the, the auteur period, the director period of New Hollywood it doesn't last very long. It isn't. It's completely killed off by Heaven's Gate, except unless your name is Spielberg or Lucas. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's really not. Uh, as, as I'm going through these films over and over again, I'm seeing that there there are producers who are exerting control or the way that Universal did it, where Lou Wasserman and the guy he had in charge, Ned Tanner, would give you a million dollars because they knew they would make back a million dollars no matter what. But that's all you got. You couldn't spend more than that. You couldn't make a bigger budget movie. So someone like Steven Spielberg, does duel for television on an extremely low budget, and that's the universal model. And he, you know, that's, that's why they were going to take a chance on him, because with foreign film sales and basic box office American television rights, they were going to make their nut back. They weren't going to lose money. So they put out dozens of films, uh, very low-budget films, and, and some of them became big hits, and some of them weren't respected, but they didn't lose money. It's when you start shooting for Jaws and Star Wars money, building on Godfather having made that kind of film. We forget how big Godfather was yeah, the Godfather. Oh the first
1: Godfather's the one where they, they – because there were still problems after, you know, Bonnie and Clyde. Oh, yeah, Godfather to, like, saved like, Fr- French yeah. <laughs> yeah, French Connection was a, a challenge for Freakin' to get people to understand, to push through. And then that one happens, and it's the Godfather that really lets them kind of – Relax. Yeah, on there's the a there's a giant thing.
0: box office slump going on around this time when even *The Body* and Clyde and like things like *The Graduate* are like successes. It's still right. not, it's not the best. It's not the most profitable time for Hollywood. And yeah, *The Godfather* was just this giant success in a lot of ways. All
2: right. But you also have to remember 1970s. *Love Story*, *God Help Us All*, and air, *Airplane*. Not *Airplane*. Airport.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a good year. You know, for big movies. Major
2: stinkers major stinkers mm-hmm. and yet they made a huge amount of money yeah and that was what the producers robert evans you know insisted on doing love story and, and everybody turned him down because they thought it was such a stupid script he had to go to ryan o'neill because nobody else would take the part yeah they had to settle you know, and his girlfriend basically dally mcgraw was evans girlfriend he put her in the movie terrible actor gave actress.
1: Gave, uh, gave ryan
2: o'neill 10 years of work that movie well, back then he and Peter Peter Bogdanovich actually did that as well. But um, you know, Bogdanovich you the, the guy in, that got out the
0: best performances out of par- performances at a Ryan O'Neal. <laughs> oh God, yes! What's up, Doc? And uh, Paper, Paper Moon, Paper
2: Moon, and yeah, the, his two best performances. I'm not I, a big love...
0: Ryan O'Neal fan. I'm sorry, I know. I, I, don't, oh. I don't,
2: I
1: don't, I don't like Ryan O'Neal. But I thought uh, Walter Hill got the best. I like the Driver, and I think he got the perfect Ryan O'Neal performance.
0: Yeah, because he doesn't
2: have to I'm say much. I not that movie. I'll have
1: to watch
0: it again. He doesn't have to say much. I mean that that helps. I mean, yeah, because I
1: I I think Barry Lyndon uh, succeeds despite him,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, but like, yeah, he's just not.
0: That's well, it, it. That's a weird thing of Kubrick too, because like, I'm not a huge Matthew Bodine fan either, and it's like, okay, there's Full Metal Jacket where it's like, okay, everything else is good in this movie, and <laughs> like, so you have right. like Barry Lyndon where you have everything else is good. <laughs> well, Barry leads.
1: Lyndon was he wasn't making that movie without him, yeah. like, and he's fine. <laughs> Throw him in here.
2: Yeah. Well, Bogdanovich, before he left his wife, Polly Platt, was a hell of a director. And, and you take a look at Barbara Streisand and What's Up, Doc. That is her best role, hands down. Right, it's her most yeah. charming. She she hated the movie. She thought it wasn't funny. And Bogdanovich, and she, she has said, that's just Peter telling me what to do, and I did it.
0: She's wrong. <laughs> Great car chase in that movie, too.
2: Yeah. And everybody takes a dragon down the hill.
0: Another police
1: shootout.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. These, but these, again, this is this is happen- what you get in the old gangster films that are following the code where the bad guys have to be punished. Mm-hmm. And you know on the difference is that here they're seen as a threat, whereas in the old gangster films, they were the heroic ones. This is very similar to the end of Scarface with Paul Muni.
0: Yeah. Where they're yeah.
2: surrounding him and they're he's going crazy having a ball with the with the uh, a machine
0: gun well i mean and as you've noted i've mentioned the changing of tones a lot of times this is you know we're we're kind of past the romanticism of bonnie and clyde at this point it's more of like the inevitable spiral downwards and we're about to we're going to lose Jim hackman pretty soon here we have not this probably is he not is
1: yet
0: he, not yet he's, he's, get, he's about to get killed it, uh, in
1: real life, he he got shot in the forehead and like lived for like another like week or two. Jeez, like they, they ended up having to like they took him with them. They said he was talking, coherent, eating stuff like that, and then uh, they, he got shot in another shootout and they just left him. And then he was in a hospital for like a week and and died there.
0: <sighs>
1: but yeah, he was. Uh, sh- they said it was like a gaping shot in the forehead, but he was
0: still. Must well, yeah, just taken out skull like, oh, or yeah, something. The, but... the head's funny like that. As far as like the way you can, yeah. Take down. Yeah, there he goes. Yeah, going. there it is. Now he's dead. Yeah. Um, and like we're losing a character we you know ostensibly like, but the movie, I mean, it's less about like look how cool these heists are, and now it's just like these people are on the run and they're often shooting cops and finding a way. to I mean, you mentioned this, Robert. I mean, you're finding a finding a way to. If the movie's trying to find a way to tell you how violence is not great, I mean, this is the best example of it right here. Right. Despite the kind of results anyway.
2: Crime doesn't pay. Yeah, in that sense, it's a very traditional film. Mm -hmm. They do get it in the end. And it's not a pretty ending, other than the the slow motion kind of imposed beauty of... I mean, there is a kind of beauty to those blood squids and, and Beatty slowly falling to the ground and
0: Oh, it's great. There's a great kind of cinematic poetry going on there in that scene. How it's shot, how it's cut together, the the, the way it's constructed. It's a it's a great scene. It's just it's incredibly depressing and tragic. <laughs> Well, I mentioned the use of slow motion I know penn was inspired a lot by uh, Kurosawa and what he was doing with seven samurai as far as the action sequences when it comes to using slow motion
2: right and also the Zapruder film <laughs> yeah no seriously they, it they, wasn't they,
1: a, no they, it was a big deal a, a reflective of Hollywood and this is why you know movies take dark turns after the Kennedy assassination mm-hmm. innocence was gone
2: yeah the novelist Don DeLillo called The Assassination the Seven Seconds that broke the back of the American century. But there's a Prader film being slowed down and and looked at frame by frame. I think they, they've said that was a big influence along with Kurosawa and some of what the French New Wave was doing.
1: Uh, uh, the reason, I mean, things were like heating up. They, they hired this uh, Texas Ranger Uh, I think his last name was Hamer to kill Bonnie and Clyde basically and he slowly followed them place to place and found he's the guy who discovered their pattern of going state to state in a circular and he was always like two stops behind them and then was able to figure out where they were able to get steps ahead of them and they just fell right into it
0: he's the LaFours of the film yes (laughs) I guess technically Hamer would be the LaFour's would be the Hamer of of Butch Cassidy and Sonny. <laughs> go. But there was a
1: there's a lot of uh, people who wouldn't take the job because they um, felt morally wrong killing a woman, so they would they couldn't get on full task. But Hamer was the guy who said, "I'll shoot her." Texas Ranger. Hamer, Texas Ranger. But they would have also, like, meetups with their families that had, like, certain codes where, like, uh, like, if I think there was one, like, Clyde's father thought there was, like, cops watching their house or something, he'd leave this bottle outside. Mm-hmm. And if they saw that, they knew not to stop there. And then they would, like, park in the woods and have, like, a light flashing signal so they would communicate from distances and have cool
0: little codes and things. Yeah. What you see reflected in films as well. You see something like heat. Yeah. Or uh, Ashley, Jen, Val Kilmer, and they're kind of a code that they exchanged during the end of that film. Yeah. Look how frantic the editing is here. You're really creating a sense of chaos
2: DD allen at work again
0: uh-huh oh and the uh, yeah. I I did mention this the, the gunshots in this film um they wanted them loud they made the oh they, they, they are they, yeah they lowered they lowered the volume around the rest of the film during these kind of scenes so you can make the gunshots extra loud um and but the theaters did not understand this so they felt that they could the projectionist would fix it um uh, by by making marks uh, on the film and adjusting the sound for those scenes, uh, which really pissed off Or Beatty when he attended some of these screenings, and was told like what they, what actually happened, which could defy the exact purpose of what they are trying to do with these.
2: Didn't Beatty go all around attending performances to make sure they didn't change the sound?
0: Well, yeah, after he discovered what was happening, yes, yeah, so
2: he right.
1: And it's still like that here on this, uh, I think, it's a, is it a mono, mono track on the Blu-ray? Yes. because I mean, it is loud for a... Especially the end. My body got clipped. Yeah, this is bloody and... The bullet, it's hurt. They, they...
0: Yeah, it's just a miserable scenario for all involved at this point.
1: Now, um, Robert, when you do your book, you watch all the films in oh, sort yes. of progression, right? So when you got to that, was this just like, even though, I mean, you probably seen it before you know you're more familiar with modern films but doing that was it still like even like a punch in the face compared to what you had been watching leading up to it in terms um, of like design yeah. and
2: oh absolutely and the, the level of blood and the, the, the pain on their faces and the the shock of the blood you know it wasn't just the old you know you get hit and, and fall to the ground kind of a thing and there's a there's a certain I mean they're trying to shock you And given the films of that period, now you watch European films leading up to this and not particularly so, and and certainly coming out of watching horror films, which are getting increasingly bloody in the sixties as well, or watching Japanese horror films, which are really bizarre in the mid Mm sixties. Um, but, but in American film, you know, violence because the production code had always been very restrained. Um, so yeah, this, this was definitely changing the rules.
0: Some would say the rules don't apply. Mm. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Warren Beatty made a movie recently, guys. (laughs) 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 He made one of those picture films again.
1: Yeah, he doesn't, it's funny, as long as he's been around, he has, what, like, 30 acting credits? Yeah, he's not the most um, prolific. For, his, for his, being a household name, which
2: probably comes a lot from this, but... Well, you gotta remember, he was spending his time chasing women. Yeah,
0: he was a big celebrity. I mean, in addition to being an right. actor, he was a celebrity. He and Jack Nicholson just doing their thing in the 70s, 60s and 70s. Of course, oh, Jack Nicholson, he, he worked a lot more. <laughs> yeah, Jack... Yeah. But yeah, now Beatty's like a reverse Terrence Malick where it's like, every every 15 years or so, he pops his head out now, as opposed to Malick, who's like, I'm making a film every year now.
1: Yeah, he, uh, wow, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, Beatty started out, like, you years. know, through the 60s and, like, in 70... 78, when he does, like, Heaven Can Wait, and, like, you know, wins plenty of accolades for that, then, you know, he eventually does Reds a few years later, Ishtar's six years after reds <laughs> uh, let us not
2: speak of ishtar at this time
0: <laughs> uh dick traces a few years after that bugsy's right after that okay so he's like doing a love affair he had
1: a he had a big he had a little big comeback he didn't do much in the 80s but he had yeah, a 90s he got presence
0: of, in the 90s spurred up then Bullworth, Bullworth had some but you know a lot of buzz with it yeah then made the made the second ishtar of town and country and then yeah rules don't apply <laughs>
2: Well, Gene Hackman hasn't made a movie in over 10 years.
0: Well, he's retired. Like, that is... Retired,
2: though.
0: He, and he's an yeah, author Nicholson's now.
2: Nicholson's finally coming back out in another film. It's been quite a while for him, too. Yeah,
0: he's supposedly going to star in the uh, American remake of Tony Airdman, but I, I don't know. <laughs> like, I... Meanwhile, they may not be quite as old, but. Oh, like, actually, like Dustin Hoffman's pretty up there at this point, but like Dustin Hoffman. 82. 82. Oh, yeah, he's older than Warren Beatty. He's pretty consistent.
1: Yeah, there was a period where I felt like, you know, you hadn't seen Dustin Hoffman or anything for a while. Yeah. And Richard Dreyfus, too. He kind of had a.
0: Well, Dreyfus chills out in, like, writes in San Diego now. He's like, girl La Jolla. And, you know, tweets about things. To counter James Woods, <laughs> right. And speaking of Gene Hackman, Dreyfus did have the Poseidon Adventure remake. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. See, I mean, we start off this movie. Everyone's full of life and like really, ch- you know, chipper. And having a great time being criminals and getting excited by the violence, as you mentioned. Uh, and now everyone's drained. This is just, it's just like, it's, it, it, Bonnie can't even walk. Uh, Clyde's t- just stuck. Like, they, they, yeah. this life is not benefiting them at this point.
1: Even on like set, too, some got like, got t- like Michael J. Pollard, that tattoo he had. He said they were constantly filming this thing. He barely got any sleep because he'd have to wake up and get that tattoo put on him, and he'd fall asleep getting it put on him. Mm-hmm. He said he was, by this point, he was just exhausted.
0: It is neat to see Clyde become, you know, unhinged as this is going on. Yeah. As Carver taking the smooth customer he was playing earlier.
1: And each of them is, uh, their opposite arm is... Right. So they're, like, one. Yeah,
0: they can still hold hands. <laughs>
1: I think of the group of the Barrow game, Blanche Barrow was the one who lived the longest. She was, yeah. I think she died in like
0: 84. I believe that episode, I mean, compared, I'm not exactly sure about the, you know, the various wheelmen they had, um, but yeah, I'm pretty sure that's accurate. Does anyone know anything about what Robert Town contributed to the, uh, to the film?
2: Yeah, he was brought in as a script doctor. He's uh not given screen credit for having written that, but uh Warren Beatty, he was Warren Beatty's pet writer. Yeah. So Robert Town was brought in almost every Beatty project for the next fifteen years. And uh Town uh more or less just tightened up the dialogue and uh tweaked things here and there. He was better known as a script doctor than he was as a screenwriter, and in fact he's made most of his money being a script doctor where he comes in and just fixes yeah. other people's work because it's hard to get robert town to finish anything <laughs> of his own
0: well yeah if you look he, at his actual credits there's not many things that he has like you know no, credits for but he's for, yeah.
2: he's for for 30 years he was hollywood's highest paid script doctor because he would come in and uncredited for a large paycheck he would simply come in and fix other people's screenplays
0: yeah which has now kind of gone into the hands of like well joss whedon had that for a while. Uh, Christopher.
1: But he did. He did finish Chinatown.
2: He, so. Yes, he
0: did finish Chinatown.
2: And then Polanski his ending.
0: Yep. Yeah. <laughs> to the fam- the family friendly version. <laughs> 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 <sighs> I was saying, yeah, J- Joss Whedon became like he's he's been a script. That was yeah. And then uh, Christopher McQuarrie um, is was a you know big script doctor too, and now he's Tom Cruise's guy. Uh, which is kind of fitting. Uh, Robert Town did a number of passes on Mission Impossible 2, and now Christopher McQuarrie is doing all the other Mission Impossible movies. Hasn't
1: hasn't James Gunn done plenty of that too? Uh, he, I uh, not to the
0: degree I think is certain. I know numbers, I, but...
1: I know with a lot of the Marvel projects he's touched um, unofficially, but
0: y- yes, I, I think that I think he was doing
1: some of that before, but I know he's yeah it uh, has strong within, within a... well, Carrie
2: Fisher. Mm-hmm. Carrie Fisher between this. The the first Star Wars films and this one made a lot of her money as a script doctor.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like Patton Oswalt does punch ups
0: too. As you were saying before, Robert here we have you know, the lawmen as the ones that are kind of being the the the, the tricksters, uh, kind of finding ways to. Twirl that mustache <laughs> to actually get to Body and Clyde, and
2: even though we're... Oh, seeing he's very it. smiley, whiplash. There is yeah, okay, that's yeah, yeah. That's why he's twice,
0: a... twice got that mustache. <laughs> like I said,
1: tell it's, me it, where they are.
0: It's essential to the film. Big ears on that guy too. <laughs>
1: It's funny you point out who the acting Oscar went to Mm -hmm. as opposed to all of them that were up to it.
0: Well, Robert, who won? Who would you say won in uh, 67 for supporting actress?
2: Oh, good God. Uh, I'm trying to remember what I... I got to quiz you. Give me a moment. (laughs) Yeah, I can tell you're going to do that. Uh, I didn't think it was her. I actually um, thought that it was just the more familiar performance, and I think the Academy felt like that poor girl. Look what she had to put up with. I mean, all I'd say c- Catherine
0: Ross there. had to put up with a lot too in *The Graduate*.
2: Well, yes, being stalked by Dustin Hoffman. People always forget that when they look at that movie.
0: Yeah, but he's so earnest about it.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Richard Driver's in that movie. I should call the police.
2: Yeah, call the police. That's true. <laughs> um. I thought Joe Van Fleet and Cool Hand Luke playing Paul Newman's mother.
0: Oh yeah, that's a good like one yeah, seed yeah. role. Which, yeah, which makes supporting fits for supporting roles. But there's
2: there are you know, there's a there's just so many roles that I mean the things that were actually nominated that year, uh, you know, Mildred's um, Natwick for Barefoot in the Park playing uh, Jane Fonda's mother, um wasn't a particularly memorable one. And then Katherine Ross and the graduate wasn't a particularly good. I mean, she's all what the heck is she doing at supporting, but, you know, she's, but not a particularly good performance. Bay Richards, B Richards as uh, Sydney Poitier's mother in uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner was another performance. And then uh, Carol Channing got nominated for Desperately Modern Millie. But Joe Van Fleet got completely overlooked, and it's really a fine performance. I guess if you,
0: if they campaigned for Anne Bancroft in supporting role, that probably would have made a difference.
2: Oh, easily, easily. No, but you know what did what did Robert Warren Beatty say the next day? We was robbed. <laughs> and Estelle Parsons came out and said the reason we didn't win anything is that everybody in Hollywood hates Warren Beatty.
0: Well, he yeah, he's a demanding person. In addition to being the person he is, on um, the uh, the celebrity. Well, he'd also
2: slept with an awful lot of people. That's lives, what I'm saying, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Now here we have almost an adena... Uh, it's like you're back in Eden, and you're out in nature, and they're healed and. At some point here they're going to have sex and it's finally going to work. His hoo-hoo will finally (laughs) choo-choo. And she's achieved fame. She's been published.
0: Yeah, she writes the whole poem. Right. Right. Is
1: Beatty not a uh, smoker? Is that why he's, uh, in real life, is that why he's not, he's always chewing matches, but he's never...
2: I don't know. Uh, to picture
0: trying to picture Beatty smoking. I can't really think of it. Because yeah. I believe both of
1: uh, Bonnie and Clyde were chain smokers, according to people around them. That's kind of pretty nice. common. Kind of, kind yeah, like, I'm, I'm pretty sure most people in that era were chain smokers, but yeah, it was
0: a... It was a you, look, you look at Beatty, like, he's a fit person. Even now, like, he he doesn't, you know, look kind of ravaged. He's older, obviously. He's 80 years old, but... You know, he's he, aged well. Yeah, it doesn't look like he, you know, had a life smoking to kind of cause any... He doesn't look like William Forsythe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even that Nicholson. man has even That Jake. man
1: has nicotine yellow hair.
0: Even Jack Nicholson, I mean, you know. Yeah. Looks like a guy that's been smoking. <laughs> you
2: know, it's funny. You, cigarettes and actors, they love them because it gives them something to do. Mm-hmm. It seems like Beatty didn't have that problem.
1: <laughs> Especially those with the Meisner technique. It's already something, a prop there, that even if the scene offers nothing.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So they finally had sex. Mm-hmm. And they're finally happy.
0: And following horror movie rules, now they die.
2: Now they die, yes. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, but that's what the film is saying, is that, you know, what what's going to happen, what authority, once you finally get to have sex and you enjoy it, what do authorities figures have to do? Ruin you for it.
0: It's I mean, you watch the second hour of this film, and as I was mentioning, you kind of spiral down and seeing how unglamorous this life is when you're really kind of in the thick of it. But it it, it perks you right back up again by seeing them back to these kind of original states. Well,
1: yeah,
0: yeah, we go right
1: back to square one. Mm-hmm.
0: The Barrow Gang is somewhat disbanded, and you see them back and just have the the element between the two of them
1: they've uh yeah the the gang has disbanded in the opposite order i mean the order which which backwards of which they came like you know they uh you know buck and his wife go first and then shortly after keep calling him wd because that's the guy's name in real life yeah uh, (laughs) (laughs) sorry cw
2: Their fantasies, their illusions that they'll have a marriage, that they'll be all right, that they can escape from all this. And Now that they've gotten to actually have sex and it was pretty good.
1: Yo, we didn't have to rob all those banks. We just needed to boink. Wow.
0: Brandon, you seem to be more informed on Bonnie and Clyde. What, ap- what actually led to the kind of setup of them?
1: Uh, just uh, being tracked, uh, they, the whole, the whole, uh, where they were gunned down, uh, they were both in the car yeah. uh, when it happened. Um, the they set up a operation where a familiar face was going to be on the side of the road, blocking, forcing them to park in a certain way, and also dressing them. and the The cops were all surrounding, and had waited for over twenty four hours for them to show up. And we're almost ready to call it off and say this isn't gonna work when they finally did show up. But everybody at the scene there at the end had been there for over like 24 hours. Like they started the like the night of I don't know is it the 23rd or something, and uh, it wasn't till the morning of like the 25th that this actually the operation actually got to go through. But
0: so were there no actual like setups because of other members of the Barrow gang, and no,
1: it it was just a matter of precision mm-hmm. from Hamer, yeah, and and wanting it to be comfortable and and catch them off guard and being being far enough ahead of them to let them just come in,
0: come
2: into the. And trap. Here they are having a normal conventional life. They bought groceries together. They're going to go for a Sunday drive.
1: And he popped the glasses. That was—that's
0: an omen if I ever saw one. Yeah, <laughs> it's
1: like like when uh, Faye Dunaway later would bump her head on a steering wheel in a different movie.
0: Or maybe he's had some deaths. <laughs> like I'm trying to. I'm just thinking about this now. Like he gets you know capped in the face and Bugsy. Uh, Bullworth doesn't, you know, end happily.
1: That deleted scene where Dick Tracy got gutted. Oh. <laughs> oh, I, I love Beatty and this is my favorite, maybe one of my favorite moments with him when he, he's recognizing just trying to be cautious in the way, he, the way he approaches the Faye Dunaway with the fake name at her and she just kind of recognizes it. I,
0: I... Yeah, I mean, we talked about the talked around the performances but these are really good performances in this movie oh yeah they're they're, they're, they're
1: Faye, iconic I, I, for... I, yeah Faye Dunaway is absolutely iconic and I'll, I'll, it does get a tribute to her fashion but I mean she's just she's always terrific um aside from Supergirl 3 or Supergirl but um <laughs> and the bye she, bye man from this year
0: yes <laughs>
1: Uh but no she's outstanding here um Like I say, you know, her her career, this is still probably top five of her performances.
0: Oh, yeah. Easily. easily. And, and
1: it's not saying she got worse or anything. It's just that that damn good. And for only being, like, like her second,
0: now, third role. Check drawer? out this. Yeah, the apple. Here is
2: Eve he, eating of the fruit. Yep. Giving it to him. And then they're going to, now that they're aware of sexuality, they're going to, you know, how far away can death be
0: there's the fat snake in the middle of the road (laughs) right
2: yeah (laughs) Yeah. the imagery is
1: quite biblical he's probably got a tool one of those mechanic tools called a snake with him
0: (laughs) there there the snake is waving his arms as snakes tend to (laughs) do
1: which by the way apparently every shot that hit them in real life was a fatal shot like they could have just shot each of them once and they'd been both dead
0: you know, you're killing a lot of cops, you're not going to get the, the slightest of treatments.
1: The, the Undertaker had trouble embalming them because of so many bullet holes. Uh, uh,
0: yeah, Robert, talk about editing. This scene is just magnificent. Just the, oh. the, the number of cuts going on here, the way we're being set up.
2: Yeah. It's brilliant, and it's all DD Allen.
0: And the final look, those final other, looks, just... those are great. Oh, And yeah, and, and Beatty's realization of what's going on is fantastic.
2: They had to you know- actually strap Faye Dunaway's leg to the stick ship to get her body to do this.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah.
2: When she falls out to keep her from coming out completely.
0: God, it's brutal. I guess there's so many shots.
1: Uh, crazier. Uh, people showed up to this crime scene once word got out and started like cutting off locks of her hair. Somebody tried to cut off Clyde's ear. <sighs> like they were trying to take pieces of them. Like that's how. So insane people were back then, but like the, the cops. You had to have call. to
2: remember when they lynched a black man in the South, it was fairly common to cut up his body and give out pieces of it as souvenirs.
0: Ugh. Good thing we're far past that. Yeah, America. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, and
1: I mean doesn't get any like epilogue doesn't
0: (laughs) that's something i always like i find a bit of humor in when it comes to kind of like late 60s and 70s cinema where movies just end (laughs) it's like no need to stick around like we got them (laughs) i mean this ending
1: inspires like this dark turns that like movies started ending just dead. Unhappily, up yeah. until about Rocky's when uh, Rocky and Star Wars is about where they started getting more positive, upbeat for the from the filmmaker movies because uh, this like James Bond would even borrow from this with uh, On Her Majesty's Secret Service. They said that it was okay, they felt okay doing that, or that Bunny and Clyde had that not happened, that movie may not yeah. Have ended. Yeah, they
2: um, already started moving towards more unhappy. And I mean, think of Doctor Strange which I really think of as the film that launches the new Hollywood as much as anything does. Mm-hmm. But the, what be happens is the obligatory happy ending gets replaced with the obligatory unhappy ending in the late sixties, mm-hmm. early seventies. And Jaws actually is one of the films that reverses that. And if you think of Godfather and Godfather part two, they end happily for the protagonist. So there's there is two there doesn't is break no. there.
0: Two doesn't end so Yeah, happy. two two's got a pretty two, two. I love the ending of two because of how like he loses everything. He gets basically kind of what he wants but he loses his entire family in the process
2: right but he wins
0: well yeah he wins in terms of yeah. sure he's not dead at what right? cost at, at what, the, what at cost, what cost?
2: <laughs> yeah there you go no you're absolutely right there is but you know the, the funny thing is from this this year it's not just bonnie and clyde it's an it's it's you know, you look at Point Blank, which is released two weeks after this was, look at the- and in many ways is a far darker, more disturbing film than Bonnie and Clyde ever will be. You look at In Cold Blood, which is made in a very traditional American film noir fashion, but it is far more chilling and far more terrifying than either one of those movies. Um, I don't know if you ever ever watched in Cold Blood with Robert Blake in his greatest performance.
0: It's a it's, yes, it's just terrifying. I just got the Blu-ray. Point Blank
2: yeah. is is a far more intellectual film and, and rich <laughs> film than even Bonnie and Clyde is. But there's this whole series of films that year. At the same time, you're getting Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And Doctor Doolittle, God help us all, you know. But also <laughs> the
0: Graduate, which is like this happy medium right. where it's like, let's just do Ambiguous. No. <laughs> no,
2: no, The Graduate is not a happy medium. That Graduate is a depressing, no, I, sad film that but people mistook for a romantic. That,
0: that's a, that's what I'm saying, though. I think yeah. there's, there's an yeah. after the fact realization of what's actually going on, but at the same time, you're getting this sense of like, well, it seems like there's a victory here, but look at their faces. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's
2: if you <laughs> watch. If you watch, Jesse's, I mean, uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is Mike Nichols' first movie, then you watch The Graduate, they're pretty much the same film. It's just one of them is at the end of the marriage and the other one's at the beginning. And Mike Nichols was asked what happens to Dustin Hoffman and Catherine Ross after the end of the movie. He says they become their parents. Hmm. And Dustin Hoffman is a creepy. Guy in that movie, he's a star. <laughs> dude,
0: you doctor. really want to bring, make yeah. this the point?
2: So <laughs> no, I don't, I don't see the graduate as a happy medium. I think people mistook it as a happy medium.
0: That's what I'm referring to. Yeah, I, I refer, yeah. as far as between between the films that we're talking about, if you look at, Guess well, Who's I mean, yeah, her, or you look at, Bunny there's a lot pride. of,
1: there's a lot of films that get mistaken for what they, they people didn't get like uh, the Palma Scarface is this apparently uplifting film to but, a whole generation of people. And it's like, no, that's not what he was trying to. Okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, that was Bonnie and Clyde, guys. We we finished the film at this point. We we keep talking because there's so much to delve into. I think, but um, this has been this has been a good discussion. I enjoyed having you guys on here to talk with me about the movie. Um, and I guess happy 50 years to Bonnie and Clyde. Um, as we wrap up here, I like to you know see where everyone else is. Work can be found. So, Brandon Peters, where can uh, people might find more of your work online?
1: Uh, Cultsumma Cavalcade, com, at CC Cavalcade on Twitter, at CC Cavalcade on Instagram. Um, we will have a new episode probably a week after this commentary
2: drops.
0: Robert James, where can people find more of your work?
2: Uh, my first four books are on Amazon. Uh, just search Robert James Who Won and you'll get all four of them there. Uh, I have a blog at rjameswho1 uh, at wordpress.com, uh, although I don't update that all that often because when I'm working on the book, that's more important. And there's also a Facebook page for the books. So, But mostly it's Amazon.
0: Great. Well, uh, you can find more of my work at thecodeazique.com. It's my personal blog. You can find all my movie reviews there. You can also find me on Twitter at Aaron's PS4. You can find all the other episodes about Out Now with Aaron and Abe over on iTunes and Audioboom. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com dot com slash podcast, twitter. dot com slash now underscore podcast. You can email us at podcast at gmail. dot com. Let us know your thoughts on uh, our Bonnie and Clyde discussion, or anything we've talked about on this uh, special bonus episode. Uh, there's a lot of things that happened in 1967 that are worth discussing for sure, and so it's uh, it's great to talk about it. Um, and uh, yeah, Brandon, Robert, thank you both for joining me today. Hey, thanks
2: for, well, thank having you me. for having me.
0: Yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, that's going to do it for this month's commentary track. So, yeah, until next, what's September? We got a lot of options in September, Brandon. We'll, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> we got some things to consider. So, we'll figure One that out. One
1: commentary every week. Enjoy.
0: <laughs> well, we'll figure out what's going on there. But until then, until next time, so long and goodbye. Enjoy!